cold outside. I think there are no clouds in the sky. I can see some stars. So I guess that the temperature is dropping quite quickly. We've had a few mild days. In fact, uh, on Monday, I'm recording this on Tuesday, uh, the temperature was between 15 and 17 degrees Celsius, which is very, very mild. The sun was shining. It was really springtime weather. And uh, the trees and the the flowers are reacting to it because you see a lot of the trees starting to uh, develop uh, the blossom. But today the temperature has dropped quite, quite a bit and probably will drop even more in the days to come. So hopefully we're not going to have any frost that is going to damage the flowers and the trees and maybe even the crops. But uh, anyway, it is what it is. <laughs> it's March and we are in the Netherlands. So it's normal to have these weird changes in weather. Uh, in, uh, in Dutch, we have a saying uh, that rhymes in Dutch. Maart roert zijn start, which means March wags its tail. So it can go one way and can go the other way the next day. And I think that's why this evening it is so cold. I'm walking through the village center. On my right here is the Protestant church, which actually dates back to the, I think the late Middle Ages, if I'm not mistaken. And of course, it wasn't Protestant <laughs> when it was built because there hadn't been uh, a separation between the Catholic Church and the Reformed Churches. Let me see. This is the uh, St. Alexander Church. And the original foundation of this church dates back all the way to the year 1100. And then they started to expand it, including this tower above me in 1360. And then some extra uh, parts on the sides of the church in, in the 16th century. So um, that's one of the perks of living in the Netherlands. <laughs> you have history around the corner. This is literally uh, one minute away from where I live. Of course, the church uh, next to my uh, home, which is the former rectory, is much younger. It is from, I think, the 50s. And that was, uh, um, uh, at first, whoa, this guy just runs me over. <laughs> Dude, doesn't he even look where he's driving? Um, pedestrians are very protected in, uh, uh, in, in, in the rules of the road. Um, this guy apparently didn't agree because he was, like, gesturing at me as if I was... Uh, <laughs> in the wrong but I wasn't he was turning into an alley and uh, pedestrians here have uh, a priority anyway some people <laughs> what was I saying um, yeah so the this this village was um, consisted mostly of um, a Protestant uh, population and it's uh, it's after the Second World War um, that that uh, these all these towns started to expand, and uh, people uh, came to live here, close to the university. 
um, from, uh, from other parts of the country. If you go east, you get to the city of Arnhem and then beyond that, Nijmegen, Nijmegen. And uh, that's a much more um, predominantly Catholic area of the country. The more south you go, the more uh, percentage-wise, at least, you have Catholics. And so that's when they decided to build a Catholic church. Um, but this was after the war, so there wasn't much money. And uh, it was one of the neighboring churches, I guess. I guess maybe Wageningen. I'm not sure, actually, what the original parish was that founded this Catholic community here in, in Benekom. Um, I don't think it's Ada because Ada too was a very Protestant and still is a Protestant town. And so the Catholics there are in a minority as well. And uh, I think their churches are also relatively new. Um, but it's a mix. And you know what? All these churches, they all suffer right now from the same uh, societal changes and cultural changes. And it doesn't really seem to matter um, what color your your denomination has and with that I mean whether you're very orthodox, conservative or very liberal and I use liberal in the kind of the, <laughs> the, the, the way that Americans use liberal which is very different from the liberals here in my country that are more uh, I, you could say more right wing oriented um, but anyway you know what I mean so it's more the progressive communities or uh, whether it's Catholics or Protestants or, or one of these hundreds of different <laughs> Protestant denominations they all suffer from the same decline and also the same uh, trouble to adapt to um, to today's culture and the maybe the language that people speak the questions they they have um, it's the society has changed so much in the span of just one or two generations that it's uh, it's very difficult for most churches to keep up with that and to find uh, appropriate ways to um, to change along. Uh, aside from the fact, of course, is, you know, which elements you want to change and which ones are supposed to be perennial. <laughs> it's always the, the delicate balance between tradition and innovation. But if there's one thing that history has taught us uh, over the past 2,000 years is if a church does not evolve and change, um, it, it disappears. And, and it's not the contents, uh, per se, of the faith, but definitely its expression. And uh, with expression, I mean in the, not just liturgical expression, but also the way in which she manifests itself, itself in, in, in society. Uh, you always need to find uh, the people in need of God's love. And every generation has its own its own um, sinkholes where people are disappearing and are, are lost and are forgotten. And it's those people you should try to find. Whereas um, it's, a, it's a, 
a very natural reaction, I think, of churches to when they are in peril. And this is also something you see in, in all generations, in all moments in history. It's when churches are uh, in, 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 in trouble themselves that there is a tendency to, to conserve, to hold on to what's yours and what you're used to. And it's a bit like um, <laughs> the Rose and, um, uh, what's his name, Jack, on the Titanic. Once the, the ship has sunk, they're both in the water and then there is this door, I think. There's this piece of wood that's floating there and uh, Rose climbs up on top of it and uh, uh, her boyfriend... Uh, is is uh, ultimately has to let go and uh, sinks to his de- death, and uh, and I sometimes wonder, <laughs> shouldn't she have tried to to save him, even if that would have cost her life? And and oftentimes you see the church kind of doing the same thing, like we're, well, at least we're afloat. But then we forget that all around us people are drowning. And, uh, and we, we, we just hold on to this, this piece of wood hoping to survive <laughs> the night. But, um, but that's actually not what we're supposed to do. <laughs> Faith is all about sacrificing yourself if, 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 if you can save someone else. And in fact, the whole like inverted logic of the gospel is you can only save yourself if you lose yourself and um, the best way to lead your life if you want to follow Jesus is by doing what he did and that is by giving your life for for the ones that you love or the ones that God loves which is not always the same the same thing we, we often love the people that love us whereas Jesus tells us well you should love your enemies <laughs> because that's what God does Anyway, so uh, all these churches, uh, no matter which beautiful buildings or cathedrals they have, uh, they all struggle right now because of this this um, instinct to survive. Uh, whereas I think in these times, maybe it's all in letting go and focusing on other people than yourself, which is, I think, the main theme of Lent. This is what Lent is supposed to help us with, is realizing that we don't live for ourselves. And that is why we are, <clears throat> we are invited to let go of things, whether it is food or, uh, you know, luxury, possession. Let's turn here to the right. There's a lot of traffic here. And here on my right is a quieter part of the, of the village. So, um, letting go also, uh, because that's what prayer is supposed to do. It, prayer is not the same as self-help, where it's all about you, um, but it's actually all about trying to make time in your life where it's all about God. And you're this, just there. It doesn't mean that you have to do a lot of things or say a lot of prayers, perform prayers, but it is... Um, just letting, letting God be and forgetting a little bit about your own 
your own life that is often, so often, the center of your attention. And then, of course, in almsgiving, it's even more specific. You just literally give away um, your, your possessions, your money. But it, that only works if it's a true gift. And what I mean by that is uh, very often if we give, we actually we, we, huh, we tell ourselves that we're doing it for someone else. But what we're truly doing is we give because we want to somehow shush our, our conscience. It's an easy way to get rid of that nagging feeling that maybe we should do more for the world than we actually do. I had a discussion with someone the other day about uh, donations, about charity. And I don't recall actually who it was, but it made me think... And that person said, uh, you know, I, I tend to not donate to these... When, whenever there's like a big disaster, there's often a lot of like immediate uh, fundraising that is done. I always seek out a, a charity around that time. But I know that most people will just give because they feel guilty that they don't do more. <laughs> Whereas I, I want to I look around and try to find a charity close to home because it is at the time of these, these big international disasters that a lot of the smaller charities suffer because all the attention and all the money goes to, the, to the, these big issues. Not that they're not important. It's very helpful, very good that people give. But... It's often the, the kind of the, the, the downside of those events is that once people have given, um, and it can be even very generous, but then they, they tell themselves, you know, I've done, enough. I've done enough for the world. And so as soon as um, there is something closer to home, they tend to, to tell themselves, well, you know what, I've already given to this big earthquake relief or the red cross or whatever so yeah i'm <laughs> i'm good the thing is the people very close to you are are still not good so what is what is the best thing you can do um, when it comes to almsgiving maybe it's it's challenging yourself to do something that is not monetary that could be a thing i've i've often wondered um, whether I, whether or not I should uh, volunteer, maybe at uh, the refugee center. They're both Wageningen and Benekom have a refugee center where it's a temporary place where people or immigrants can stay, and they have a place to sleep. They get food. Um, they get a little bit of money so they can uh, buy groceries. I often see them here downtown in the stores, and they will buy fruits and vegetables and uh, sometimes some meat if they can afford it so that they can cook a little bit uh, according to their own traditions in the immigration center. Um, And then this is while their application for uh, a refugee status is is being considered and of course that, that often takes a couple of months. And so if they are granted asylum... 
um, then they usually move to another place or if they're lucky they even can uh, rent a place to stay um, but for the time being oftentimes these people are are staying here for for several months and of course it's the last place on earth you want to be because it's together with hundreds of other people that are in that same situation and some of them are are uh, genuine uh, refugees and they do need asylum and uh, but there are also people uh, there that that you know are there for very different reasons and there are also and this is unfortunate but it's it's just a reality there are also people you cannot trust that are there you know working for people smugglers and people disappear sometimes from these centers nobody knows where they go because of course the police is unable to track them they hardly have any you know social identity and i wa- i've always wondered you know wouldn't that be um, a, a much better way uh, to donate, <laughs> to to share, if I share my time volunteering? And as I'm saying it, I like my mind is telling me a hundred reasons why I shouldn't do that because I don't have time for that. You don't have the energy for that. There are other ways in which you can help, but. I'm pushing back against those thoughts because I'm telling myself it would that would be so easy to just give a bit of money. And maybe that's a start. That's something that you can always do. But giving some time and attention is, uh, is a much greater sacrifice. And if the logic that Jesus proposes is the more you give, the more you will receive, then maybe that is the way that, that he's pointing me. I tried to do this um, uh, in the weekends when I celebrate Mass by making sure that I don't run away uh, after Mass. This is always something that has baffled me um, when I wasn't a priest yet. And I went to church in various places, sometimes in the university city where I stayed, or I would go to church... Um, with my parents or friends or wherever I was. And later on when I was in seminary, sometimes I would go to this church and then to that church. There's still a lot of Catholic church open. A lot of them have have disappeared since. Um, And I often would see that priests would appear from the sacristy magically. (laughs) They would ring the bell and then all of a sudden the whole procession would exit from this, this hidden place somewhere in the building and then at the end of Mass, the opposite would happen. <laughs> they would disappear again in the, uh, after a procession, and they would all go into the sacristy. The, the sacristan would toll the bell, and that's it, you know? <laughs> you would not see the priest again. And so he would not be available for maybe very legitimate reasons. Maybe you had uh, another church that he had to go to but I always felt that it's it's missing this uh, dimension of making time for people not just liturgically by 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 in a certain way leading the liturgy for an hour 
But oftentimes people come to church because they would like to have some advice or some guidance or maybe someone who prays for them or, or blesses uh, an object or something, little things. And by not making time for these people, by not gifting them extra time, um, they, they don't have the opportunity to uh, speak to you. And so then church becomes just... And it's 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 not just. I mean, it's the wrong, the wrong wording. But it's 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 liturgy. But liturgy is only one dimension of what it takes. I think of being a church. And so, um, as you know, uh, Father Eric and me, we've been uh, uh, trying to. Uh, let me go. Where am I? The Dickenbergweg. I'll just go here. I think I'm walking towards the woods, um, which is... Um, this is still a neighborhood with, with, uh, with houses, so there are streetlights. But I think at the end of the road, that's where the streetlights end. And I don't know if the road, actually, if there is another road with lights. Otherwise, I'll have to return because it's not prudent to walk around in the woods in the dark. I'm not afraid of anything, but... It is, uh, it's risky because there are, uh, you know, tree roots and sometimes they've been cutting down a lot of trees um, with these machines. And so they've been driving through the woods. And I've noticed while doing my runs that uh, uh, the woods are, are, are very much uh, um, in upheaval. And so the roads are not that straight anymore. Ooh, this is a big, big garden. Here on my left, with a house, like at the end of the garden. Usually they also have watchdogs or guard dogs. And so that is always what scares me. You're walking here and it's kind of quiet and it's dark. And all of a sudden on my left, you'll hear... (laughs) It makes me jump out of my skin. And I would probably also um, make you (laughs) jump out of your skin. (sighs) Ah. Sometimes happens. I remember that um, Cliff uh, Ravenscraft sometimes does these these walks and and uh, and then every once in a while there there are quite a few dogs in his neighborhood and you, you would hear this this loud barking all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, anyway, I think the dogs are inside. It's too cold to be outside. Oh yeah, this is exactly what I thought would happen. So if I would continue straight on, there is an entire part of this road, even though it's still a, a, a road for cars, there are no street lights. So instead of going where this car is going, I'm going to turn right here on the Heinrich Witteweg, that road of Heinrich, the white one, whoever that may be. <laughs> it's usually historical figures. That I don't know because I I don't know much about my my own nation's history. Uh, I was always more interested in like the big like European history and Middle Ages and like more recent history of the Netherlands. It's never really interested me for multiple reasons. Anyway, what was I saying? Uh, 
Yeah, so about making time for to listen to other people. So with uh, Father Eric, we've been uh, covering for um, uh, most of the masses in this in this area of the parish. Um, Father Murcio is doing a little bit better, so he's been treated for uh, stomach problems, and he's not fully recovered yet. And he'll have to get some surgery, I think, in April. But so he's slowly gearing up a little bit. I think he just moved to Wageningen, to the old rectory where, where Father Henry used to live. So I'm happy for him that, that at least he's now in his parish, living in his parish. That must be really great. And um, so for the time being, uh, Father Eric and I, we're, we're doing um, multiple masses in the weekend. Father Eric, a few more than I do. He has Saturday evening mass and then uh, on Sunday, usually two or three masses. I do two, uh, two or three masses every every Sunday. Now it's a lot. I'm not used to that anymore. I used to do that um, very often when I was in my previous parish. I would have, uh, oftentimes, I would have a Saturday mass and then Sunday two masses, and then I would do the streaming mass. So I would have four masses per weekend very often. Um, but during COVID, of course, I didn't have that. Um, I just did the the Mass via streaming, the International Mass. And um, I've noticed that that, that uh, doing more than one Mass on Sunday uh, is taxing. It's it's uh, Especially if one is Dutch and the other one is English. Um, you have to switch, and sometimes we'll have like two different types of masses, one with children and families, and the other one is just more for uh, slightly older people. I, I do change my homily. I do change my, uh, my style a little bit, the language. But I still really want to, take, to make time for people after mass, even if I have to still go to another uh, location after the first mass. I, I really want to have at least 15 minutes so that people can approach me and uh, and I can listen. And that is, turns out to be um, the, the biggest energy drain, strangely enough. It's listening. Listening seems like a passive uh, activity. But if you're actively listening, which means you really listen carefully to what the other person is asking you, telling you, sharing, and you try to offer support or guidance or... It's like um, spiritual coaching sometimes. And, and, and at times people will, will deliberately... They will ask me for that. They will tell me I've, I'm struggling with something. I would like to talk to you because um, I need some guidance. And that's all. Sometimes it's in, in a confession. People will walk up to me They'll ask it, can, I, can you hear my confession? Which is not just um, kind of what you see in movies, where I sit in a, in a dark little closet and then I open this little window and then people tell me all their sins and then I make the sign of the cross and say the uh, prayer of absolution. Very often today, um, it, confession is also, you could say, Guidance. It's it's sure it's helping people with the things they struggle with, and sin is also something. All of us struggle with sin, 
not just struggling in the sense that we're 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 trying to fight evil in ourselves. No, it's a, sin often comes from a deeper struggle in our lives where we have difficulty to cope with um, our emotions or with um, damage that we have incurred, and we've we've. We, we are trying to cope in different ways and not all of them are healthy or good for us and they are maybe hurting us, they may be hurting our relationship with God, they may be hurting the people around us. And so the sacrament of confession for me is absolutely a, uh, an occasion to guide people, to help them, to heal. And the first thing you do um, is to listen very actively in confession. This is why sometimes a priest may ask questions. And not, not just clarification, like, how many people did you murder last week? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's all, all about trying to find well, what, is, what is this truly about? Because a sin never is an isolated thing. It's not just because people just tell themselves, hey, today I'm going to be evil. I'm going to do this evil thing and to hell with everything else. No. That's I don't I don't know people that just sin because they they like to hurt other people. Um, but sinful behavior is I think the best way to, to maybe redefine it is it's harmful behavior. You're harming yourself. You're harming other people. You're harming what is truly important in your life. You're harming relationships. But if you if you look at why you react sometimes with anger uh, or, or you're uh, being very selfish and um, you don't take into account other people's feelings and emotions, uh, you don't seem to be able to control yourself, it's very often because there is a deeper problem underneath. There is hurt a lot of um, sinful behavior and harmful behavior comes from defense mechanisms from fear and so the way to heal um, this harmful behavior or or the hurt is not just by by waving a magic wand Uh, forgiveness is, uh, is often mischaracterized by people who kind of only look at it from the outside as this magic eraser. Like your soul now has stains on it, but, you know, abracadabra. I, I wave my wand and now it's all brand new again. Yes, in a certain way, that is what confession does. But... It's not a magic wand. Like, no sacrament is, is magic or is akin to magic where you just kind of wish away something. No, it's ultimately, it's always um, healing. It's, it's the, the true miracle is that God is patching together the pieces of your heart and makes it whole again. And if you're whole and you're restored in... in uh, the ability to love yourself and to love your neighbor and to love God that is when, when sin disappears that's when the struggle sometimes eases because no one sins just for the fun of it 
that is that is ridiculous we we even like um to give you some examples the, the someone who is drinking too much or maybe even you know goes and drives a car while having drunk or while being drunk yeah that is sin that is definitely that would classify as something you would bring up in confession but the true um, the, the true power of the sacrament works not just on erasing that stupid thing that you did but it is healing your soul why do you drink why do you drink so much <laughs> why do you tell yourself it's not a big deal it's because you are afraid of something else and you're trying to numb it by drinking too much. You're trying to self-medicate. You tell yourself that, you know, I'm fine. I can handle this. I can drive home. I've only had a few beers. It's also because you don't, you don't dare to ask someone else to drive you. You've, you you're afraid to, um, to be humbled, <laughs> to, to be ridiculed. There's a lot there. Those are the questions. I think that a, an attentive and active listener can ask. It's in a similar way, on a spiritual level, what a, um, a good therapist would do. A therapist is not just telling you this is what you should do and this is, this is unnecessary behavior and do this and do this and then you're going to be fine. Um, a, a, a good therapist and a good coach will always start with listening and then asking questions and going beyond just the surface of what is said and to try to reach with the other person the core of what it's all about and try to untangle that and try to find ways to shed light on it and in the sacrament of, of reconciliation to shed love on it. This is something that I wish um, we as priests, as the people that are serving this, this, uh, these people through this sacramental ministry, that we would, we would be able to make this more prominent in the way that we talk about the sacrament. I think a lot, and maybe it has to do with the, our own experiences. You know, we, we've been uh, uh, educated and formed in times by, by a generation, a previous generation, that oftentimes had a very formal uh, view of what confession was. It was literally just count your sins and tell them, and then you express your contrition, and uh, the priest will propose some repairs, and it's uh, <laughs> it's usually like a, a few prayers, and then it's all good. It's all true, but I believe it's like the minimum <laughs> of what the sacrament should be. And uh, it may be with people who are already like very used to um, receiving the sacrament of reconciliation that you could sometimes maybe suffice with just tell me what went on and then I'll 
absolve you if you have uh, contrition uh, because you know that that person knows knows the way and is is in a process of healing um, so not every confession needs to be this long conversation but I have to say those kind of habitual confessions are extremely rare nowadays for most people that ask for the sacrament it's usually something that they do very rarely and so I would say if the church feels that this is something that they could and I believe that this is an important sacrament especially now that people are so often alone in having to deal with with all this harmful behaviors and these defense mechanisms um, and to have some divine help to have a God who unconditionally loves you even though you have sinned because that's what makes God so incredibly um, more uh, so, so powerful it's often you know a therapist can of course analyze and help you see this is why you do this etc but a, ther- a good therapist won't have a moral a moral judgment won't tell you oh that's absolutely hor- horrific <laughs> you're going to hell if you continue this um, no a therapist is just there to observe to guide and to ask questions and to maybe propose also some uh, changes and some different approaches I'm again walking towards a very dark uh, entrance to the woods here and some people are coming out of the woods with, because they've been walking their dog but I don't feel comfortable <laughs> continuing here because I don't have my uh, my LED lights so when I go run in the dark which actually is something I should be doing right now my running group is out there somewhere behind me <laughs> in those woods but they all wear these um, vests these fluorescent vests with uh, LED lights on the back and on the front. Um, I skipped the training because uh, um, I, I still uh, I'm very very careful with the way I manage my energy, and uh, one of the things I, I focus on during Lent this year is to be very very um, uh, careful. Um, and deliberate about my health and about my sleep. So, um, in in previous years, I've, I've I've done many different things to focus on during Lent. For this year, I I think I told you when Lent started that I still didn't really know exactly what I was going to do, but it would certainly not be something super heroic. Um, and so. Um, I, I, I took some time to figure out what would be my focus this Lent, and it's been, um, it's been sleep and balance. So uh, one of the most challenging things that I'm doing right now is to make sure that I sleep around eight hours every night. And it's a, in a certain way, it's a penance because it means I have to go to bed earlier than I'm used to. Um, it means I have to go and wind down much earlier, which is also something I'm often tempted to, uh, at the end of the day especially, to think that I, I haven't done enough and so I keep working and then I postpone 
the time uh, to to relax, and then I I go to bed very late, uh, and then I'm I'm tempted to wake up at the, you know early because I feel like oh man I messed it up yesterday I need to you know get up and running. Uh, I take the total opposite approach this year, so I go to bed earlier, um, and it's hard because you know a couple of days or a couple of evenings per week I like to go online and uh, play uh, a video game and to chat on discord uh, with my friends and and then I always have to you know at 10 o'clock I'll get back to the topic of uh, confession in a minute (laughs) but um, at 10 o'clock I programmed my home system to turn off all the lights and it's literally, it's like, boom, it's dark. Of course, it doesn't shut down my computer. But for me, that is the moment that I have to tell my friends that, uh, unfortunately, I have to go to bed. Even though we may be in the middle of a conversation and I feel guilty about abandoning the group, you know. And I know that's all in my mind. Uh, it's all in my head. But it does, it is a little bit of a sacrifice to step away from that game and from the social environment and and go to sleep and then in the morning I try to do I let this car pass very smooth nice car oh my gosh it's one of those I think hybrid cars there people people in this neighborhood are very rich and you can tell they all they all have these very sleek black cars with uh with silver trimmings it's uh and they they make sounds that approach like flying saucers instead of <laughs> old-fashioned cars um uh what was i saying so yeah so it it happens from time to time that i don't sleep that well i wake up several times or i start to worry oftentimes and i wake up like at six in the morning and then my head starts I start thinking about stuff and I I can't get back to sleep. I think normally I would get out of bed and just uh, go for it. But now I, I look at my... Uh, well, actually, the watch doesn't really help me there, but I know when I went to bed. And so I know that I haven't re- yet slept eight hours. So I will, again, make a sacrifice to not follow my impulses to calm down my mind so I do a few of those uh, exercises where I just listen to my breathing and I I try to focus um, on not on not on my thoughts but just go and try to go back to sleep I sleep an hour more or two hours more and so far so good for more than a week now I've been able to sleep approximately eight hours per night it's been such a game changer it changes my my energy levels, but also my mood. Um, so I feel like this is this is so important for everything um, to to protect that sleep uh, because I it's the it's really the groundwork for my overall balance and health. And I'm not there yet. I still am more tired i don't have the energy or more tired than i than, than i would like i don't have the energy that i used to have 
but it's going uphill in, in, a, in a good way. It's going in the right direction. And I think it is mostly, ooh, they've got a little fountain here in their garden. Oh, that is nice. This is the first time I noticed that. I walk past this house almost every day and I've never seen that they had a little pond with a fountain. Lovely. Um, so, uh, the, anyway, so that's what I do for penance, uh, this, this year. And I, um, I think it is, it, it, it will, it's start already starting to pay off. It's calming me down. And, uh, when I'm tired, I also tend to make the wrong decisions. <laughs> I'm, I'm overcompensating my own fatigue it creates stress and everything and well at the moment i feel very calm and i think the sleep is the, is the basis so back to reconciliation um for me it's it if the church could uh tell people that we're here to listen we're not here to judge or to tell you how wrong you are and a lot of people still think of the church as that uh, sanctimonious organization with a wagging finger telling other people how bad they are whereas the church itself is totally corrupt and it's a criminal organization that should be uh, uh, forbidden by law <laughs> I, I'm just uh, maybe um, uh, exaggerating a little bit but, but some people definitely say think so um, and I would like to uh to show by my willingness to listen and to be there and to, to donate my time and my energy when I'm listening to uh, the people that come to me that that this is this is actually what what the church is uh, we are we are disciples which means that we are we are here to learn or and, and the discipleship starts always with listening and it's through listening that you learn, not just by listening to, you know, scripture and the, the church, and and and, uh, um, but it's it's also listening to what people tell you. You can learn so much from the stories that people share with you. Oftentimes in confession, I am more. Uh, how would you say that? I feel like I'm benefiting even more than the person who is receiving. Uh, forgiveness you know the other pe person may think that uh, that 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 I am just there as a distribution <laughs> how you say a distributor of divine uh, forgiveness but I'm also there as a human being who knows very well that grace is flowing through me and at the same time, I'm a broken vessel. I'm, I'm just as broken as the person that talks to me and sometimes even more broken. And yet, it's through, it's through the, the fissures, you could say. Is that a word? Through the, the cracks that the light can shine through. It's through the... Uh, the the cracks in the pavement that, that the grass will grow and sometimes even a flower may may spring up. It's, it's the same, I think, in in the sacrament of reconciliation. Is 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 
if you really attentively listen and you listen in prayer, um, you learn so much from what people uh, confide uh, confide you with. And it also helps you, uh, it helps me to be vulnerable in confession. And oftentimes uh, the advice that I give, and this is both in confession but also outside of confession, is based on the, the moments where I've been forgiven and I've been picked up and what has helped me to heal. And the older I get and the more I invest time and energy into healing myself. I'm not healing myself, but into finding healing for myself. Um, the more I think I can listen with empathy and maybe even share some of the wisdom that I've discovered in my life. And that's that's wonderful. I always I've been brought up with the idea that that you know sin Sinful behavior, harmful behavior is, is you messing up, doing something wrong and uh, being a failure. And I, I don't think that anymore. Yes, morally wrong, yes. Absolutely. In the sense that, you know, if something is hurtful, then, then it's not helpful to, to say that, well, that behavior is great. Of, of course not. You, you cannot go to your doctor and tell him, hey, I've got a high fever. I'm running a high fever. <laughs> uh, I've broken my arm. And the doctor says, ah, it's just a matter of perspective. Like the Obi-Wan <laughs> thing, you know. It's just a matter of, of perspective. I, I actually think it's, you know, it's great to have a broken arm. It's great to, you know, pe- people call it broken arm. I just call it a different arm that is... Like bending in places where other people cannot bend their arms, and no, <laughs> a, a good a good diagnosis means you speak truth. Um, so that respect, you know, calling something wrong or right, is necessary. But what we often do ourselves if we're called out is we we feel guilty we we start hating on ourselves that is absolutely not what we should do it's it's the more you discover how broken you are the more you should love yourself and not in the sense that <laughs> you love that you're broken and you love what you what you did wrong and how you hurt other people no of course not but you love the person that needs that love to heal and oftentimes harms uh, other people and harms that relationship with God and with yourself and with your neighbor because you're not loved enough or you have not been loved enough or maybe you your love has been when you love someone you ex- you expose yourself you make yourself very vulnerable and sometimes people that may have taken advantage of that and while your heart was wide open they may have they may have stabbed it with their with their hurtful and harmful behavior or words or violence but the last thing that God wants is that you hate yourself because <laughs> he doesn't 
the more he sees how hurt you are and how broken you are, the more he can't he can't stop himself from from loving you even more. Where where sin abounds, grace also abounds. It's very comforting. I, I feel this is also what solves in my mind this conundrum of how can I be an instrument of God's healing when I'm so broken myself? How can I listen to other people's confessions when I feel that my sins are much bigger than theirs? Well, it's because as a broken person myself, I also constantly am reminded of the fact that um, that God loves me regardless. And he's chosen me to be a priest and so a minister, which means a servant of his, um, of his forgiveness. Just like he asked Peter, who betrayed him. Peter, who oftentimes was so short-sighted and, and the other apostles who so often were... We're, we're selfish and, and impatient and, and, and just not receptive to what Jesus was trying to teach them. And yet he asked them to go and forgive people their sins. You know, whose sins you forgive will be forgiven and whose sins you won't forgive won't be forgiven. So he puts the, his forgiveness, the power to forgive in the hands of people who themselves have shown time and again how broken they are. But it is Peter who was forgiven by Jesus. You know, he, after he betrayed Jesus, it's Jesus who, who comes to sit with him and asks him, Peter, do you, do you, care, do you love me? And, and three times asks Peter, uh, do you love me? I, take care of my sheep. I trust you and I know that you have this capacity to love because um, because I love you <laughs> and I've forgiven you and I've healed your broken heart. So now pass it on. Be an instrument of my healing for other people that are just as broken or, or, or more broken than you. Because you know how much God's forgiveness means if you've been forgiven a lot. This is why, um, as a priest, I, I feel it's, it's my mission to be there for other people, to give my time, because I've received so much that I cannot hold that for myself. And as much as God listens to me and hears me, even though I keep, um, because I'm not yet completely healed, I keep hurting myself and other people. And I keep uh, uh, kind of, uh, what's the word? Um, oh, you hear that? This is, there's a choir inside the Protestant church. That's nice, isn't it? Sounds like Bach. John Sebastian Bach. Very pretty. Ah, that's a nice, unexpected 
a gift to hear that beautiful music coming from inside. Those old churches have fantastic acoustics. So um, I'm going to start wrapping things up here. But um, suffice it to say that I... Um, I think that when I'm when I'm pondering about you know what else can I do during this time of Lent, it, the, the, the gift of listening and listening means not only opening your heart but also opening your calendar and you know uh, uh, making time and as much as as much as needed. Like oftentimes people walk up to me and can I have five minutes of your time because they feel like I'm super busy. And they're, um, they may feel uncom- uncomfortable asking more than five minutes. And then oftentimes, once I start listening, you, you talk, you share for an hour. And that's fine. Because, you know, that's, I want to give that time because I've, I've received that same kind of patience and, and, uh, um, an openness through other ministers, other priests that I've encountered in my life that have done the same for me. And I, I was where, where the people that I speak to are often are now. And it's like in the past, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to impose on you. You, may, you, you must be very busy. Uh, I'm, my life is too insignificant. <laughs> and then it's always such a, a gift if someone really takes time to listen not just because you force a person into a corner and <laughs> and offload or all, all your frustrations or, no but someone who really listens and asks the right question so you 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 can tell from the questions that, that that a good listener asks you that he or she is truly listening so i'm going to think about that maybe uh this will also um, inspire you to think about well, you know what is my capa- my listening capacity who are the people that I could help just by making some time for them uh, donate my time instead of uh, just just narrowing everything to oh I'm just donating money to charity and then I can go on with my life now ask yourself uh, you know can I um can I do something with the talent that God has given me to uh, to be a good listener? All right. <laughs> time to head home. And thank you so much for your time. Uh, and for, the, I should say, the privilege of your time. Because I know that it's voluntary. Um, but I, I appreciate the company. And uh, we'll talk soon. Have a great, a great, another great week of Lent. And... Uh, <laughs> We still have some weeks to go. God bless.